I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Richard, did your lights turn on this morning? Well... Yeah. I mean, <laughs> did yours? Well, yeah, which is really kind of a minor miracle if you think about it. In fact, our electrical system is one of those vital parts of our infrastructure that we don't think about enough. And our guest today is going to explain why we should not take our power grid for granted, because it's in much shakier shape than many of us think. Saving the Grid with Meredith Angwin. We could have all these wind turbines. We could have offshore wind. We could have transmission lines that come all the way from from uh, Arizona where there's a lot of sunshine. But th- that's not what's going on on our real grids. And people aren't looking at what's going on on our real grids and all the areas that various federal agencies are warning that they're, they don't have enough reserves for the winter, that winter may be difficult. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix it? it? How do we fix it? Nearly two years ago, hundreds of people died when Texas's power grid partially failed during a winter cold snap. California came close to a grid collapse last summer, and New England might be in big trouble this coming winter. What's going on? Well, I know that you've done a lot of work on why it's a bad idea to shut down nuclear power plants that supply large amounts of electricity uh, and aren't dependent on the weather to do so. We've discussed some of this in earlier episodes of our podcast, but our problems with the grid are a whole lot bigger than just not making enough electricity. Right. It's not just about how we make power. It's how we deliver power to users. For big chunks of the country, that system has changed radically. Those changes were meant to make our energy system more competitive, but in a lot of areas, they've backfired. And you know, all of this matters more than at any time I can remember uh, for three reasons. The fight to limit the causes of climate change is clearly one. And then second, with digital technology, we all rely on electricity more than ever. And third, the geopolitical clash over energy has grown more intense and even more violent since Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Our guest Meredith Angwin is a chemist and energy analyst who has worked in various parts of the energy industry. Her latest book is Shorting the Grid, The Hidden Fragility of Our Electric Grid. She joined us from Wilder, Vermont, 
And Richard, let's go to the interview. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. And I really like the title of your uh, podcast because it's so upbeat. <laughs> <laughs> well, ho hopefully, hopefully this will be an upbeat show, but we always ask what's wrong first. Uh, yeah. One of the things that's wrong is the fragility of our power grid. You know, we take it for granted. So Meredith, tell us what happened in Texas in the winter of last year, 2021. Oh, it was a disaster. I mean, okay, the first thing that happened is that it, it got very cold. And in Texas, a lot of people use electricity for heating and others use natural gas. And then a lot of power plants use natural gas. And a lot of people were using more electricity than they might have used when it wasn't so cold. Uh, and then the power plants were trying to keep up, which was hurt by the fact that the wind fell. And the wind had been putting a lot of megawatts on the grid, but then it decided to stop. You know, nobody controls it. And the power plants were also having problems due to poor maintenance and some poor decisions, too, because uh, Texas had decided that compressors that are run by natural gas put out too much pollution. Many places decide this. And so they had compressors for the gas pipelines that were run by electricity. Well, guess what? When you shut off some of the electricity, you shut off more of the gas. At first, a lot of people were pointing fingers at Texas's heavy reliance on wind power, but a lot of it had to do with the way that Texas organizes the power grid. Uh, like some other parts of the country, they have a competitive, supposedly market-based system to pay producers of electric power. How did that system work and, and what went wrong with it? Well, the ultimate thing that went wrong with it is that a lot of people lost power and, and about 100 people, maybe more, I've seen estimates as high as 700, lost their lives due to being in overly cold houses or trying to bring in an outside heater uh, to warm the house and, and having, having carbon monoxide and so forth. So, and uh, the prices went up terribly. Now, one of the things is that the market system assumes that if the prices go up, there'll just be more power on the grid because all kinds of people will be eager to get their power onto the grid. This is only partially true. The Texas grid operator auctions were paying for uh, I think 90 cents a, a kilowatt hour of power, something insanely big. And the thing is, if there's no electricity available, it doesn't matter how much you're going to pay for it. In my book, Shorting the Grid, I try to make a real distinction between the policy grid and the physical grid. And people have the idea that the policy grid will completely control the physical grid. It will influence it, but it can't make molecules of natural gas out of nothing. And Meredith, we're dealing with human lives here. I mean, when the, when the power goes off, it can be a matter of life and death because more than ever, we rely on the reliability of the power grid for our most basic needs. Yes. When I talk about the power grid, I talk about reliability as the first requirement for the grid. 
because that is really what we need the most. Electricity is absolutely essential for survival in the modern world. Part of what went wrong in Texas can be traced back to what you call the policy grid, the rules regulating the distribution of power. And they have a system called a regional transmission organization and something that we see in various parts of the country. This is something that's so uh, kind of such a deep dive in how energy works that even though I cover the field, I really barely understood it until I read your book. Can you explain what an RTO is and how it works? Okay, a regional transmission organization was set up for the noble reason that the idea was that transmission between states needed to be easier. Okay, fine. But then, then they, they, they moved on to, and there should be competition, so they're going to run auctions. And the cheapest power plants are allowed to put power on the grid. The cheapest power plants per kilowatt hour marginal cost are allowed to put power on the grid. The other power plants have to wait until there's more demand on the grid and then they're put on the grid by this auction. It's called economic dispatch. On the surface, this sounds pretty good. The cheapest bidders sell their power first to the RTO, or Regional Transmission Organization, but the outcome can be distorted by subsidies for some sources of power. One example, especially in Texas, is wind power. It is true that what happens is that the uh, when the wind is blowing strongly, the wind farm can contact the RTO and say, I got a lot of power now, and I, I'm, put, I'm planning to put it on the grid. And then the RTO will probably say, go for it, because the wind farm cost for the next kilowatt hour, that is the marginal cost, is usually zero. Why is it zero? There's no business in in this country that can give away its product. Well, the thing is, the wind farm has two sources of funding outside of the market. It has a source of funding. It can sell something called renewable energy certificates, and it can also it also gets a federal tax credit called the production tax credit for every kilowatt hour it puts on the grid. So it can get nothing from the grid, not a penny for any of its kilowatt hours. And it can still be making like six cents per kilowatt hour, which is the usual price on the grid for other power plants because it has these two outside funding things. This system of having auctions, it's what Texas has. But what about other states, other parts of the country? Do they also have a similar system? Or do different regions have completely different ways of generating or supplying power to consumers? Well, different regions have completely different ways. There are several RTOs in the country. I'm in one, which is the New England, ISO New England. So there are a bunch of regional transmission organizations or RTOs in various parts yes. of the country, not the entire country. Do they all rely on auctions yes. for uh, for electricity? Yes, they right. all rely, okay. rely on auctions, but they're allowed to set up their own 
criteria for auctions. For example, our RTO here in New England has a capacity auction. Uh, Texas does not have a capacity auction. Uh, the, the Midwest ISOs have, uh, one of them has a capacity auction only in the summer. I mean, they, they're allowed to have their own rules on, on what kinds of auctions. And what we're hearing here is already sounding very complicated. When these systems were first proposed and set up, they were supposed to be simple, more competitive, cheaper. They were going to encourage more diversity of power supplies on the grid. But you argue that, in fact, they're very opaque, very complicated, and they're kind of rigged for insiders. Uh, you know, the, the, the customer certainly doesn't understand how, how these things work. It can be very complicated to explain. In the old days, and I'm not saying the old days were perfect, but your local public utilities commission, which was in your state, was the main regulator, and it deferred to Federal Energy Regulatory Commission for certain types of things. It was in your state, so it held meetings in the state, and, it, and, and the meetings were usually open to the public. The RTO uh, meetings are, are rarely open to the public. There, sometimes there's actual fights about whether even a reporter can come in and report on them. So pretty soon you have this complicated, self-referential and very closed system. I mean, if I were a lawyer, I could be doing very well with the knowledge of this system. You call the traditional utility system the vertically integrated model. What do you mean by that? Vertically integrated means that if you have a utility and you're at home and you get a bill from that utility, the utility is in charge of maintaining the distribution lines near your house, sending you the bill, fixing the distribution lines after the storm, buying enough power either through owning a power plant or owning part of a power plant, renting or owning some transmission lines to get the power from the power plant to the distribution. It was all vertically integrated. In other words, the buck stopped right there on the utility's desk if you, if you, if you lost power. When I look around now, the places that still have that system have less expensive uh, power to the end user. That in an RTO system, distribution utility is buying power at the auctions from the generators. The generators have no particular responsibility to you. They're in business to make money, and they go on and off when they can make money, and uh, or when they're called upon. If if you point at your local utility and and say, you 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 guys, you weren't putting power on the lines for me. And they'd say, well, you know, the generators were all off. Well, it's not our fault. We don't own those generators. We can't control them. So we had a system, or much of the country still has the utility system that has its own problems. But the new system, the RTO system, seems to be pushing us in a direction of a less reliable grid, one that is more prone to, to blackouts and other problems. How scared should we be? I heard you recommend that people should buy wood stoves if they want to make sure that they can keep their houses warm this winter. That seems pretty drastic. Is it really that bad? Well, it's not that bad, but on the other hand, it can be. I mean, looking around at the Northeast here, we have had 
some major reliable power plants shut down. I'm talking about uh, nuclear plants, coal plants, and so forth. We depend on importing liquefied natural gas to keep our gas-fired plants going. And there's a real worldwide run on liquefied natural gas. So we're going to have to outbid them all. The way many of us talk about energy, we see a difference between good energy and bad energy. I mean, I really would like us to be carbon-free if possible, but it sounds like that talk of high carbon versus low or no carbon energy has obscured a needed argument that I guess we're having right now about why it's important to have regular uh, supplies of electricity. Um, is, is that right? Uh -huh. Has the argument over green energy made uh, electricity less reliable? It has in the sense that it has uh, distracted people from reliability. What I tend to say is I say, well, look, okay, there's a physical grid and there's a policy grid, but there's something called, that I call the could grid. We could have all these wind turbines. We could have offshore wind. We could have transmission lines that come all the way from, from uh, Arizona where there's a lot of sunshine. But th that's not what's going on on our real grids. And people aren't looking at what's going on on our real grids and all the areas that various federal agencies are warning that they're, they don't have enough reserves for the winter, that winter may be difficult. That doesn't make it to the front page of the paper. Without electricity, we are really sunk. I'm, 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 I'm sorry, we're, we're really sunk and we need reliable electricity. You live in Vermont which used to have a lovely little nuclear plant called Vermont Yankee that shut down, I think it was 2014. Oh. Uh, and yes. all environmentalists cheered. But you you and your husband fought to keep that plant open. You lost that battle. Yes, we did. We did. It didn't work. Uh, you know, the thing was that, that the uh, the state of Vermont Every time you looked around, they had a new kind of tax to put on the plant. It wasn't the most cost-effective nuclear plant because it was a small plant and it was a standalone plant. So in recent years, Vermont Yankee and some other nuclear plants have been closed. Whatever people may think of them, these plants were reliable sources of carbon-free energy. But when they go off the grid, the power that they made is replaced by sources that emit carbon. The conversation about how green we've got to be sometimes gets me uh, very annoyed. People say, oh, well, it's going to be replaced with renewables. So it's going to be replaced with some renewables and mostly natural gas. And that's what actually happens when uh, Vermont Yankee or Indian Point were shut down. It's predictable. This episode of How Do We Fix It? features working chemist and author Meredith Angwin. She headed projects that lowered pollution and increased reliability on the electric grid. Her work included pollution control for nitrogen oxides in gas-fired combustion turbines and corrosion control in geothermal and nuclear systems. Meredith was one of the first women to be a project manager at the Electric Power Research Institute. Next, more of our interview. 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. Meredith was asked about solutions as we always do on our show. And she said, we need to be realistic about our options as we try to reduce pollution as well as carbon emissions into the Earth's atmosphere. This is a transition that is not going to happen overnight. And we can't just shut down all the power plants right now because we don't like the fact they make CO2 in the hopes that there'll be a great lot of wind turbines and solar that'll make up for it. It doesn't ever make up for it. They're intermittent and we end up needing natural gas. And someone says, well, there'll be batteries. This is part of the could grid. There are no battery systems right now that can back up a 6,000 megawatt grid or even a, a, 400, a 400 megawatt power plant. Do we need to make it easier to build new power plants or have better transmission lines? Is the difficulty in getting uh, transmission lines constructed part of the problem as well? Getting transmission lines constructed is a huge problem. You can just watch the Northeast uh, with the number of transmission lines that were supposed to bring more power from Hydro-Quebec down to like the Boston area. And this has been going on with, I don't know, four different transmission lines proposed and shot down one after another by locals. I think that the better thing to do would be to make it easier to build a new power plant, especially a nuclear plant in in this country. Better transmission lines could be good, but... I feel that people are putting way too much hope in that if you don't build more power plants. <laughs> in other words, where are the where are these transmission lines going to get their power from? And also, every transmission line is to some extent, if it's too long especially, it's a weak point. There are ice storms, there are hurricanes, there are all kinds of things. And, and if you have relatively short transmission lines, then you can repair them relatively quick. But if you have long transmission lines, it's just just harder. This is a part of the energy discussion that I think is often overlooked. Because renewable sources are intermittent, you have to have more of them, and you often have to have them much farther away from where the energy is consumed, unlike a traditional power plant, which can be built relatively close to cities and areas that consume that power. Would you say that's a hidden cost of renewable energy? Oh, yes, very much a hidden cost of it. Renewable energy is very site-specific. The, the wind blows a lot in Vermont on the ridges, not so much in the valley. So if you want wind turbines, you've got to put them on a ridge. And if you want um, offshore wind, you've got to put it offshore. So you end up with with these long uh, lines uh, to 
these intermittent resources. It's not a, a very cost-effective way to do this. Are there things we consumers can do to lower our own carbon footprint? I mean, our family installed solar panels, and they feed power back to the grid. If many of us do this, can that make a difference? In a well-run grid, that could be a big help. The, the problem is that we don't think about what solar panels can do and what they can't do. They're very, very good during the day. But if they begin making so much uh, electricity that because they can bid in to these auctions at zero, they begin forcing other plants off the grid, then they, they destabilize the grid. An individual can definitely do a couple things. The first thing is like solar panels. The second thing is uh, whether or not you have time of day pricing, try to run your dishwasher in the middle of the night, try to try to run your washing machine or dryer late at night. Final question for me, Meredith. Do you think it will take another or maybe even several major power outages for there to be a shift in the debate over energy and the, the, the fact that we do need reliability it needs to be a big part of our uh, conversation. Uh, basically, I think you're right because people are so used to the idea that the power is always on and it's going to take something for them to understand that they have to do something for the power to be always on, that there's a whole infrastructure that makes it easy for you to flip the light switch on or for turn on your computer in the morning. And uh, I think think that the conversation shifts as this becomes more obvious. And the situation in Europe, if we're willing to learn from it, is... One of the things about Europe is that a lot of countries there decided to depend on their neighbors. Oh, we'll get natural gas from Russia. Well, maybe not. We need to look at self-sufficiency. The United States has a lot of self-sufficiency intrinsically available compared to, say, Belgium. But on the other hand, we're careless of it. And foolishness can lead to as many problems as lack of resources. Meredith Angwin, thanks very much for joining us on How Do We Fix It? Thank you very much for inviting me. Next up, it's our recommendation. Richard, you have something for us this week from your wide-ranging interest in world cinema or world television. Tell us about it. Yeah, it's a new show on Netflix, which is said to be illegal drama, but it's so much more than that because Wu Young Wu is a young lawyer with Asperger's syndrome with a very high IQ, an incredible memory, and she has a wonderfully creative thought process. And this is just a delightful show, and it's another example of why um, international television from all over the world is is often well worth watching, not just for the scenery and the different ways of that people do things, but also just sheer entertainment value. This show is a lot of fun. It's called Extraordinary Attorney Woo. And where is it from, Richard? 
It's from South Korea. My daughter, Kate, lived in Thailand. And she said that Korea, which is a neighboring country, was the style capital of Asia. And it's true on this show that the clothes that the people wear, really remarkable. That sounds great. Our conversation is next. So, Jim, Meredith Angwin, she is uh, talking about a subject which really doesn't get nearly enough attention, and that is not just whether our electricity supply should be more green, but just whether the lights turn on during the day. We just take it for granted that, that our electricity supply is there, except perhaps in times of very bad weather. But what she is saying is if we don't pay real attention to this, uh, we could have a much more serious crisis in the near future. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, there's nothing really as scary except for maybe a nuclear war, or, you know, asteroid hitting the earth or something, than the prospect of a protracted outage of our national power grid. The store shelves would be empty within a few days. The trucks would stop running. The backup diesels would run out of fuel. The police stations would shut down. And we we have a hard time believing that kind of stuff because it just seems so remote. But a, a blackout is not a trivial thing for, for the grid. And we are skirting that line much more closely than we should. And instead, we're having arguments about so-called good energy versus bad energy, an argument worth having. If we simply take for granted the supply of energy under any circumstances, uh, what will happen is, I think, a, a major crisis, and then we'll pay attention. It could happen this winter in New England, you know, not not the kind of nationwide thing that I'm talking about, but a serious, scary outage. And what she gets at, I love this concept of what she calls the could grid. 90% of the media that you read about the power grid is about this this future power grid we could have if all these technologies that are being advocated actually work. Meanwhile, the attempt to go more renewable on our power grid has all these perverse effects that not only do they make the grid less reliable, but they also in many cases even undermine our efforts to decarbonize the grid. When you have solar arrays dropping power onto the grid at prices of zero or below, and that pushes nuclear power plants out of business, the net result is more carbon emissions in the end. When energy markets are distorted, other dependable sources of electricity can be pushed off the grid. It pushes coal out of business, and we like that. You know, I mean, that's a good thing. Right. Uh, to, as long as we can maintain grid reliability, we should be evolving beyond coal. But it demands more gas-fired plants because gas plants can quickly turn on or off to respond to quick changes in the supply coming from wind and solar. So since uh, the year 2000, we've doubled the amount of electricity being made by natural gas in this country. Or when Indian Point shut down up the river from us, it that power was replaced by two brand new gas-fired power plants. So the efforts to bring in more renewables are having this perverse counter effect of actually also encouraging the development of more gas, even while it's often causing nuclear plants to shut down. 
There's some good news here, though, and perversely, is that the recent big increases in the price of natural gas are changing some of those economics. There's a lot of nuclear plants people were worried might not survive. Those look much healthier now. And there's much more political will, including in the Biden administration, to preserve nuclear power as an important part of the clean energy grid. Here in the U.S. and in other countries, we need to do all we can to fight climate change. And despite this, some people on the right deny there's even a problem. But for people who do believe there's a, there's a climate crisis, you can still have two ideas in your head at the same time. We need low and no carbon energy, but it also has to be reliable and affordable. We can have a good, clean grid that includes renewables uh, along with other power sources and brings carbon down dramatically. But we've got to be serious about the nature of the problem. And boy, we are serious on how do we fix it. <laughs> I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. This show is a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Find out more at our website, which is Davies, D-A-V-I-E-S, content.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.